What is going on, everybody? Welcome to another Baseball America Draft Podcast. I am Carlos Colazzo, here with Peter Flaherty for the second edition of the Draft Podcast on the Baseball America feed this year. Peter, what is going on, man? How are you doing? What's going on, Carlos? I'm excited to talk through some draft guys with you today. Yeah, it should be fun. We are about four weeks into the college season. A lot of high school action has gotten started throughout the country, still waiting on some northern states to get rolling. A lot of those players won't get into action until April. Um, but as is the case every year, it feels like we're eagerly anticipating the season for weeks and weeks and weeks, and then it's here, and then all of a sudden we're into conference play, and things really start flying. But um, today we're going to talk about the 1-1 debate at the top of this 2023 draft class, if there is a debate uh, how we view kind of the top tier of players forming at this point, uh, who we would expect the Pirates to maybe favor, even if the Pirates are a tricky team to figure out up top. And then we'll talk through some players who who are performing early on, seem to be moving up boards, similar to what we did a few weeks ago, just kind of your draft check-in uh, and, and state, of, state of the board, I guess, at this point. But Peter, I'm curious how you view the top of the class right now. I've, I've had some conversations with scouts around the country over the last few weeks. I know you've been doing the same as well as we prepare for an update to our draft board. We'll be expanding to the top 300 players in the class shortly, um, but it does seem like there is a group of players who are kind of bubbling to the top. A few of them, or actually all of them we had on our top 10 entering the year, um, but certainly guys like Paul Skeens, who we had at number eight, we currently have at number eight overall, Wyatt Langford, who we currently have at number four overall. It feels like those two players have both joined Dylan Cruz, Louisiana State's center fielder, and Chase Dollander, Tennessee's right-handed pitcher, as kind of the top four in the class. At least that's how I'm viewing it right now. I'm curious if you view it similarly, uh, and, and if not, who else would you include or who would you remove from that grouping? Sure. I mean, it's still relatively early on, I guess you could say, but at least in my eyes and from what I've heard, it's sort of these four college guys in any iteration. I think that Dylan Cruz has stepped up as that clearer number one guy. Um, I actually think Skeens is closer than people think to going 1-1, but I think it's these four college guys and then everyone else. Um, and that could obviously change. There are still some high school guys who still have to get their season started. Um, high school guys who, you know, evaluators and scouts have to get out and see, so they could kind of push their way up there too. But I don't really see, at least at the prep level, um, anyone kind of setting themselves above like a Cruz or a Skeens, um, who, even though they're on the same team, I think that they're probably one and two in my mind right now. Um, I know Lankford's dealing with a lower body injury that he'll miss some time with. Um, but he's been producing at a super, super um, impressive clip early on. But I, I think I, I'm really interested in Skeens um, at 1-1. Uh, he's a guy that in talking with some scouts, uh, I think that he's a real, real contender to go in that 1-1 slot. Um, you know, it's a six, six front of the line starter. Um, he's been up to one-on-one with his fastball. And I think what's been most impressive is he's shown the ability to start and to go deep into games. Um, he's shown impressive feel for three pitches, all of which you could call plus. Um, so it's kind of like, I guess right now, do you want a really, really safe pick with also some, you know, a ton of upside in Dylan Cruz with all-star type upside, Mm -hmm. um, and I guess you could 
people are viewing his floor right now as like, okay, if he bottoms out, he's still probably like a slightly above average slash a contributor at the major league level. Mm-hmm. Um, but with Skeens, I mean, you're looking at a potential one or two starter. So I, I think it's like, if you're looking at those archetypes and looking even forward into future drafts, um, I guess how many guys kind of fit that mold of being closer to a Dylan Cruz or like being closer to Paul Skeens, at least in next year, you have a lot of great position players. You've got Honeycutt in center field who I guess you could comp closer to Cruz. And then on the arm side, I don't really think there's anyone that both from a body standpoint and stuff standpoint quite fits Skeens' mold. Mm-hmm. Um looking way further down the road until 2025, ironically with Chase Shores, who's also at LSU. So um, I think it's an interesting debate. For me, it's between those two guys um, at 1-1. But, of course, you know, Wyatt Langford's been great. Uh, missing time with an injury will just hurt just from a sheer sample size standpoint. It's not going to knock his stock at all just because, you know, injuries happen, and this one isn't one that'll really linger for him, hopefully. Um and then Dolander's a guy I've been impressed with him really in the last couple of weeks. We've kind of seen the Chase Dolander that we were waiting for, which we talked about it on the first podcast. It was so I wouldn't say unfair because he's a great player, but coming into a season with those high of expectations, they're almost impossible to live up to unless he went out on night one in kind of a colder weather setting, even though it was in Arizona mm-hmm. and carved through an Arizona lineup an Arizona team that's turned out to be really good. So um, yeah, I, I think it's kind of Cruz and Skeens then everyone else. And then looking at it from a broader picture, I think it's these four college guys and yep. then kind of like the Max Clark Walker Jenkins of the world. Absolutely. Uh, I'll be seeing Walker Jenkins this evening after we record the podcast. I've heard good things about him early this spring. Um, it will be interesting to see if a Walker Jenkins or a Max Clark, when he gets started, if they do enough this spring to kind of get into this conversation a little bit more. I know it's it's typically trickier for high school hitters, especially, to move up boards consistently. They do a lot of their damage over the summer. Um, just depending on the competition they're facing, there's not a ton that can change about your evaluations with the player, barring some massive strength gains or, or tool jumps. I guess Jackson Holiday would be a, a pretty clear example of a guy who did that from just last year. Um, Walker Jenkins and Max Clark are both quite a bit more physically developed at the same time than Jackson was entering the spring. But kind of getting back to this top four, I think the Paul Skeens conversation is going to be super fascinating moving forward and and really quickly just to run down what all these guys have done because the numbers are just ridiculous for all of them dylan cruz through 17 games has hit 519 653 926 with five home runs seven doubles twice as many walks as strikeouts paul Skeens, i'll go with him next since he's your your number one or one two at this point he's posted a 0.75 era with lsu through four starts 24 innings he struck out 48 batters and walked just four, um, allowed only two earned runs. Chase Dolander with Tennessee also has thrown four games, 2.45 ERA through 22 innings. Another great strikeout to walk rate, 41 Ks, five walks. He's allowed three home runs and six earned runs. That's the biggest difference between Skeens and Dolander at this point. Uh, just a few more runs for Dolander. Uh, and then Wyatt Langford, again, has been fantastic with the bat. 
431, 557, 931 through 16 games. He's homered six times. He has more walks than strikeouts. Uh, and as we enter conference play, I think for all of these players, you'd expect the numbers to maybe come to earth a little bit more. But at the same time, all the players we're talking about have, have pretty gaudy production numbers throughout their college careers. Um, I'm almost a little bit disappointed that we don't have a clear number one player uh, coming out at this point because the Pirates are so tricky to figure out. I remember the last time they were picking 1-1 in the 2021 class where we also didn't have a clear number one. It was more a cluster of five players who everyone kind of viewed at the top. And it was take your pick. Who do you prefer? Who's who's going to take the best deal? Uh, and that certainly seems to have factored into the decision for Pittsburgh to take Henry Davis with uh, him signing for almost $2 million under slot value for the first overall pick. It's always unfortunate if we wind up in those situations with teams who are happy to just take a deal when they're in that scenario. Uh, it makes my life a lot more painful when trying to figure out what the mock draft is going to be. But I am curious, just with some of the injuries we've seen from spring training with, with Andrew Painter getting hurt, with Kate Cavalli getting hurt, just the attrition you see with pitching prospects in general – how will that factor into the risk-reward calculations for teams picking at the top? Because you mentioned, and I think it's a, a perfectly sound argument to make. I fully buy it. If you wanted to say that Paul Skeens had the highest upside in this draft class, I think that's perfectly justified. I mean, to your point, there are not college pitchers with his stuff, with his size, with his performance that come around very often. I was just talking recently how I think between both Skeens and Dullander, uh, I haven't seen a college pitching prospect this good in the last four or five years. Uh, I, I think there's a case that since I've been covering the draft, which would have been 2018, my first year kind of doing it on my own with Baseball America, uh, the best college pitching prospect in that time was probably Casey Mize. And I think we would both take Paul Skeens and, and I would take Chase Dolander over Casey Mize at this point. I think they're more classic pitching profiles uh, entering the year. I think... Certainly, Dolander had a better track record than than Mize did entering his draft year. So it is interesting to think through, like, at what point is the pitcher just too good that you take on the risk that's inherent with pitching prospects? And at what point is, is the hitter too safe and too comfortable to pass on? I think that's a fascinating conversation. I've talked to some scouts already who, who kind of point to both Cruz and Langford, and they say, hey, these are two up the middle, potentially up the middle, at least at the beginning of their career, college hitters with tools, with power, with speed, with good defensive ability, really well-rounded profiles who performed in the best conference. Uh, there's just not a lot of risk you're taking on there, and you have a chance to get an impact every day, all-star caliber player. Why wouldn't you take those two players over the arms? And, and at the same time, I've talked to other people who are like, you don't find pitching prospects like this with Paul Skeens and Dolander very often. You're, you're very rarely in a position where you can acquire this sort of talent at this kind of acquisition cost that you have in the draft. And and maybe it's the case that any time you're taking on a pitching prospect, you're just always going to have to stomach the risk that comes with it. Um, but when you balance out the, the price you're going to be acquiring them for, for the potential upside, it's worth it. it it's going to be fascinating to see how it happens. I think for me personally, I would probably go with both Cruz and Langford at this point over over Skeens and Dolander, but I couldn't fault anyone who um, had a different order for those. But how, how would you line them up one through four right now, Peter? If you were if you're in charge of picking for the first four teams and, and going straight on talent, because 
obviously the, the signability and the financials will come into play with the draft, but in terms of just lining them up in, in your preference right now, uh, with the caveat that things can certainly change in the next few months and we can reshuffle this order, what would your order be? I think mine would be Cruz, Langford, Skeens, and Dolander probably. Yeah, so I think you made a great point in the middle there talking about conference play because I think at least for the LSU guys, they open up their four first SEC series are going to be A&M, Arkansas, Tennessee, and South Carolina. And so for both Cruz and Skeens, they're going to face really good hitters and really good arms. So, I mean, that LSU-Tennessee series is going to be – I can't remember the last time there will probably be, be a question hype around a college series i will be at that one and i remember looking at it on the schedule and booking it in like february and really worrying about the amount of people and trying to make sure i had a spot behind the dish so i'm i'm all set for that series i cannot wait it's probably my most anticipated college series ever initially i was really excited about it because i was like oh chase dollander versus dylan cruz it's going to be potential one versus potential two and now it's like okay maybe it's one two and three right here in the same series and maybe yeah. the one and two are both on the same team. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And you're going to get some good 24s with, uh, you know, well, this is a conversation for later, but Burns and Hurd and yeah. Drew Beam. So it'll be, and then you've also got Mally Ahuna. But anyways, uh, you know, they've got A&M, Arkansas, Tennessee, and South Carolina. So Skeens is going to have to navigate his way through a South Carolina lineup and a South Carolina team that's been outstanding so far this year. They haven't really been tested much in the competition department, but their production has been undeniable with, you know, Gavin Cassis, Cole Messina, Ethan Petrie, uh, Braylon Wimmer. I think I'm definitely leaving someone out there, but I just one through nine, they're a really tough lineup. Um, And I think if we're sitting here um, after those first four weeks, about a month or so, a little less, and Skeens is still putting up stat lines where it's, you know, six or seven innings, 12 Ks, one or two walks, one earned run, two earned runs against these really good teams. And they'll have to go on the road to South Carolina and to A&M. Um, that's going to make for a an even more interesting debate. Um, and then on the flip side, if you're sitting here and Cruz is still doing what he's doing, which this isn't a knock against Skeens. I, just from what I've seen with Cruz and what everyone's seen with Cruz, in his first two seasons of SEC play, I'm more confident in Cruz kind of keeping these types of numbers up. I don't think he's going to be hitting 519 on April 7th after this little gauntlet they've got to go through. If he is, then he is the 1-1 one, one because yeah. that's, you know, that speaks for itself. But um, in terms of lining them up, I'm with you at Cruz at the top. I, I think that for as good as these other three guys have been, I think that Langford missing a little bit of time hurts him just in the one-one conversation. Um, because I think when you look back, Dylan Cruz will probably have fifty-five to sixty-two games, and then Langford. I don't know how much. I don't want to even speculate, but he'll have he'll have less than that. Um, and then also, I just think the overall profile is. I think I I I I don't think that teams will or I hope the teams just don't overthink it in the I I think it's a pretty clear pick. It Cruz at 1-1, one, one, um, like you were saying, I think you get you know, a floor of a slightly above average big leaguer and then the ceiling of an impact all-star, an annual all-star type of guy. So I'd line them up. I'd go Cruz 1. Mm. For as risky as pitching is, 
I I really do like Skeens. I love, you know, the arsenal he's got with the fastball slider combination, the slider and the fastball are each 70 grade pitches. Changeup is probably like a 55 or so, but it's it's an above average pitch as well. 6-6 six, six starter. If teams are going to look at him, if the Nationals are looking at a one or a two starter, I think they definitely take him above Dolander. And then if you're the Nationals, just kind of looking at the outfield with kind of wood and green in the pipeline, mm-hmm. I, I'd i go probably Cruz one, Skeens two, Langford three, Dolander four. I think that the two and three battle is a lot closer than anything else because I think that those two are going to be – I think if whoever goes two, the other will go three. I would be – not shocked if Dolander pushes his way up because again, he's going to also have to face an SEC schedule. And if he performs really well, then, um, you know, that that's going to be enough for him to push his way into that top three conversation. But when I'll send down, I'll go Cruz, Skeens, Langford, and then Dolander. But I think it's really close. Um, after one, one, I think that you can shuffle them any which way, especially, um, Skeens and Langford. That's, that's going to be a really tough one. Yeah. Just hearing you talk through it, I mean, it really highlights how close these these players really are. I think uh, we will discover a lot in conference play. I think in, in many ways, this has just been kind of the appetizer of the season. Um, obviously, the reason that the SEC is so valued is because the competition is so great. And we really haven't fully gotten into that for most of these players. I mean, some of these teams have already played strong schedules. Some of the teams haven't quite yet. So just the, the variance of the competition that they've seen so far is, is a little bit up and down. Um, but that all ends once we're fully into conference play. Hopefully Langford comes back uh, as soon as possible and is, is back to his, his typical self. I kind of agree with you. I don't anticipate the injury uh, hurting his stock too much other than just simply you lost some games that you would want to see him in. Um, but he's got a pretty pretty complete overall profile in terms of skills, in terms of tools, and in terms of defensive profile. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of the picture at the top of the draft class right now. Still very excited about this 23 group. I was talking with JJ the other day. He's starting to, to get excited about this class. I think the the excitement overall around the group is is kind of building as maybe people who haven't put as much attention uh, that, that you and I have, Peter, throughout really the past six months, um, six plus months for this group. It, I still am very high on the class overall. I think it's quite strong. Um, but let's get into some other players who have been impressing us further down the board. Um, you, as you do every week, you, you had a piece on standouts from week four. There are a number of, the pl- of players that we're going to talk about in this podcast who are on that list. I would encourage you all to check that out at BaseballAmerica.com. I've got a stock watch up as well, going over 10 players who are, who are moving up boards. We could do more than 10, but these are just kind of 10 notable players that I've been hearing chatter on in conversations with scouts over the past few weeks, players who have performed, um, some high school players who have made some stuff jumps. Um, but just to start out with some players who are impressing, Chase Davis has been very good with Arizona. I think he's always been a player who scouts have liked the athleticism, the physicality that he has, the raw power, the arm strength in the outfield, one of the better throwing arms in the class, I would imagine. The contact rate is up for him early this year. Again, the same caveats about 
getting into conference play, Arizona has just one week of, of Pac-12 play. But I think, and Peter, you can probably speak to this better than I have. Arizona has played a, a pretty solid schedule um, prior to getting into conference play so far. But he's hitting 328, 427, 690, six home runs, uh, almost as many strikeouts as walks, which is good for him. I think really the biggest thing is the contact rate is up a little bit compared to his career contact rate. And with a guy like Davis who has power and has a good approach and, and the contact has really been the biggest question, seeing that get sustained throughout the full 2023 season can certainly help push him up boards because I think if you have fewer questions about the, the quality of the pure hit tool, you're looking at a pretty solid overall right field profile with the requisite power with the arm strength that that certainly profiles at the position and he's just kind of been a steady performer even if he hasn't hit over 300 yet with Arizona which I think will be a a pretty key factor this year in terms of boosting him up boards if he can if he can hit over 300 for the full season that would be impressive but the on-base percentages have always looked pretty good Um, and without any wood bat track record I think there could still be some concerns about what really is the hit tool so nice to see him starting off well he's probably the highest ranked player um, outside of kind of the top group of guys who who's doing well and moving up boards right now, unless you want to talk about like a Kyle Teal, but uh, he's one for me. How about you, Peter? Yeah, no, going with Davis, I think the most impressive thing, and I was digging into it a little bit um, last night, are his miss rates are, are way down. Um, some of them even sliced in half. Uh, he was really struggling last year with spin. Slider miss rate was over 40%. Changeup was nearly 40% curveball was also above 35 and so this year again this is before he gets into the meat of the pac-12 schedule and as for those who don't know the pac-12 is typically super pitcher heavy it's a really professional style of baseball very polished um he's going to see a lot of high quality arms for you know friday through sunday for the rest of the season so and right now the miss rates are the slider. It's still a little high and I think it was 30%, but the changeup and curveball are way down change up 28 now. And then the curveball just 20. So it's clear he's become more disciplined at the plate. He's refined his approach. Um, like you were saying, the arm is an easy plus at right field. It's an impact bat. He's got above average raw power at all fields. Um, the swing is polarizing. Uh, I think some love it, some don't. But it looks it looks very pretty when it's working. I looked at his home runs this year, and it's just such a it's such a fun swing to watch. I think I am a little lower probably on the swing than you are. I just had some concerns about how how grooved it is. Like that was the knock in high school, and I think sometimes you can see that. Um, but it looks pretty at times. Uh, when it, with it when it works, I, I'm with you. When it works, it's majestic. Um, when it's kind of left on left, really good breaking ball, you're kind of like, mm, it's a little big, but, um, you know, like you were saying, he's, he's put up really impressive numbers this year, the swing decisions and the approach in general kind of always stick out. Everyone's known about Davis's raw power since high school. He had 18 last year. He's on pace to hit around the same, maybe even break 20 this year. I think that's going to be really tough to do in the pack. And if he does it, then that's that probably puts him in the top 35 or so top 40 range um and then like you said if he can kind of check that box of hitting over 300 for a full season that's a big one too because arizona has played a tough schedule they opened up um with the mlb desert for or the mlb desert classic they opened right up with tennessee fresno michigan state and then uc san diego who 
you know, a lot of people probably don't know about. They're a much better team than um, you might think. They recently turned D1 and they've got a lot of good arms. Um, and then, yeah, I, I, I'm just looking to see who they played. Yeah, they played West Virginia and then they kind of slowed down with North Dakota State. And then he hit really well this weekend against Cal. Um, Cal is a lot better team before Ian May went down with an injury. I would have loved to have seen Davis against May because it's a funky lefty from a low slot, um, kind of a sweeping slider, um, not a ton of velo, but a really uncomfortable bat. So um, Davis is a guy that I'm pretty high on, even more high on now after seeing what he's done through the first few weeks. And um, kind of like everyone on this list um, or really everyone we've talked about, getting into conference play will be a real kind of make or break time for him because if he can perform against these high level arms in the pack, especially those on UCLA, Oregon state, um, Washington, who we'll get into a little bit, at least one of the arms on the Washington staff in a little bit, um, that'll do wonders for his draft stock. And, um, I think he's well positioned to play himself into a top 30 or so pick here. Yeah, he's been a good one. Um, I've got another direction we can head, but I'll, I'll throw it to you if you've got a player that that you're ready to talk about next, Peter. I don't want to uh, I don't want to take over the whole podcast and choose all my guys. So there are a couple of players we've both written about, but which direction do you want to head next? Yeah, I'll stay at the college ranks and talk about another uh, really good left-handed left-handed hitter um, in Nolan Shanuel at awesome. Florida right. Atlantic. Well, we're on the same page. Yeah, he's a borderline um, kind of cheese ball guy for me at this point. Um, I really liked him um, even as a sophomore last year. He hit 370, 17 doubles, 16 bombs. The approach is what really sticks out for him. Um, he's able to have a super advanced approach without sacrificing any of his power. Um, and he's off to a similar start this year. He's hitting... 464 the the k the walk to k i guess in his in his case is even better than it's been in the past he's got 20 walks already in just 17 games but he's also got 25 rbis and eight home runs <laughs> i think the 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 loudest performance for him so far was the three homer game against miami uh even though it was in a midweek or against florida oh yeah excuse me even louder against yeah, florida yeah. um in a midweek and He's always been really impressive. Even on the Cape, if you look at his Cape numbers, they're really modest. He hit 200 with one home run, but the approach has been there. He's He was posting really high exit velocities all summer. Um, it's a unique operation. His hands are, are really high, but it's super rhythmic and in sync. He's got a really controlled load. And then I saw some side video of him. Actually, the, the BA account tweeted out, I think, yesterday, and his hands are super explosive. Um, it was something that I should have picked up on a little earlier. I knew he had explosive hands, but mm -hmm. seeing it from the side, his, his hands are super, super quick. Um, and he's able to generate so much quality impact. And then if you combine that this year, he's only swung and missed, um, and seeing 200 pitches. So again, a, a sort of small sample size, I guess you could say, but he's only swung and missed nine times. Um, which is really, really impressive. And you could kind of chalk that up to saying, oh, you know, he's at FAU. He's not going to see Pac-12 pitching. He's not going to see SEC pitching. But yeah. he has seen some quality arms. They've faced Miami. They've faced Florida. Um, and they face quality competition in general. So 
Um, if you isolate that even more, he swung and missed against a fastball just twice. Um, and he swung and missed against spin, any type, slider, curveball, changeup. He swung and missed just seven times. So he's he's definitely just talking through him now. He's definitely in cheese ball territory because I think that there will be some teams who view him potentially as a corner outfield type of guy. Uh, there's a chance that he could end up out and right. But I, I think that the bat, the hit tool is probably – I'd stick a six hit on him right now pretty comfortably um, with 55, maybe even six raw. So you're getting also a premium body at six four two ten. So he's a guy that, that I think could go similar in that Davis 30 to 40 range. It wouldn't shock me even if he went a tick higher because I think he's just going to absolutely dominate CUSA play. And that's a good mid-major conference. I just think that, the caliber player Sean Willis, I think that this will be his most impressive season in terms of the numbers he put up. I, I think it's right now he's got eight. I would not be shocked at all to see him hit 20 to 23 home runs and, and eclipse that 60 RBI mark. And very sneakily, he's got six bags. So if he ends up with, you know, 20 home runs, 15 bags, hitting in the high 390s, maybe even low 400s, um, yeah, I, I think that's another guy who could go in that 28 to 45 or so range. I'm curious to see what you think about him. Yeah, no, I think that was an excellent summary of, of Sean Noel. He has gotten a lot of attention. I think, like you mentioned, that three-homer game against Florida. Uh, there, were, there was a lot of scouting heat watching that game. Uh, I think there were probably a lot of people who wanted to see how he would look in that midweek matchup against Florida, just given the the competition that he's going to face throughout most of the spring. He certainly lived up to the expectations, has been fantastic. Uh, what's interesting about Sean Noel is he, he seems to have one of the best combinations of contact and exit velocity in the class. Now, maybe you could say that because he's playing in, in the conference that he's at, those contact numbers are going to look a little bit juicier than they otherwise would. But I think what's always stood out for him is is the approach first. Uh, and that's kind of let him get to his power without um, without sacrificing contact, without sacrificing on-base percentage. It's, it's not a high-effort swing that he's kind of looking to do damage. I think he's just big and strong enough and has the raw power that it certainly just comes natural to him. Entering the year, it was maybe a question of who was the best college first baseman in the class between him and Trey Morgan at LSU. I think at this point in the year, maybe partially because Trey Morgan is playing a little bit of outfield now as well, which maybe we'll see Sean and Will play at some point at the pro level. I think he's probably a, a bit of a sneaky athlete over there at first base. Um, I think he's solidly the, the best college first baseman in the country and, and in the class right now. Maybe not in the country, but certainly in the class. Um that sort of production has has been great to see. I think the approach is maybe not a huge deal. It, it does look a bit odd when players have that high handset, and it's interesting that it seems like every year there's at least one player who starts off with, with a super high handset, but he gets to launch position pretty consistently. Like you mentioned with the swing and miss, it, it just very rarely happens with him. Um, and teams want big bats, and that certainly is what Sean Will is. I'm curious to see how he's drafted, if he's drafted as a first baseman or an outfielder, um, but certainly a loud start for him. The numbers are silly, uh, and like you mentioned, I kind of expect them to, to keep being silly. So I don't really have a, a ton more to add than, than what you said, Peter. I think you you nailed it. 
Yeah, I, I think you made a great point too. These mid-major guys, their midweek games against the high-quality competition, they they become, you know, they'll get viewed under a microscope with 100%. how they do. Yeah. Um, so it's a lot of pressure. Um, but Sean, if you're a team that has a cross checker coming in, you're going to want that cross checker coming in against a game like this. And so even if an, an area scout has a long history with a guy and really likes him, if the cross checker comes in against good competition and he kind of just misses it a little bit that day or is off or just struggles that that can really affect how a, a specific team views that player. And while it yeah, might be, a small sample size and just a bad day, it, it certainly impacts decision-making and to see him like clear that bar against Florida uh, several times over, I think is only going to really help him. People are going to consistently point back to that game and be impressed. I mean, he turned around 95, he went down and got a slide or he got an up and in slider, got his hands inside pretty easily. Uh, and then one of the sliders he hit out was, was pretty much a middle, middle hanging slider that he kind of muscled the center field. But I think uh, that look is going to do a lot for him come July. Right. And, and even that Florida game was obviously that was viewed at a national level. That was kind of like, okay, you know, if you don't know about this kid, you know, you've got to know about him now, but in three games against Miami, uh, they played Miami once and then they played Florida twice in a midweek series. Sean is seven for 11 with five home runs. Um, that'll play. <laughs> so I, yeah, I, I think he's put himself in a really good spot. Um, I'm excited to see the types of numbers he puts up against conference USA competition. I don't know how much he'll really even get pitched to. Um, they do have another good guy in their lineup with Jackson Ross and Dylan Goldstein, but um, I think the OBP numbers are going to be nutty. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm really excited to see what he looks like come, come July. Yeah. It really wouldn't shock me if he snuck into the first round, depending on how some of the pitching and some of the um, more up the middle college position players hit in conference it wouldn't shock me at all if, if some model teams were just super high on the OBP, on the exit velocities, on the contact rates. Like, he does a lot of things well. Um, so, yeah, if he wound up being a first-rounder in July, don't don't be surprised. That's your that's your cheese ball. So Yeah, I was going to say he's firmly, firmly in cheese ball territory for me now. There are a number of players in Florida that are trending in the right direction. A couple of prep player, players, excuse me, that I wanted to touch on. Really quickly, um, a few pitchers. Cameron Johnson, a left-handed pitcher at IMG Academy. He has been very exciting early on this season. I mean, he entered the year with solid stuff. He had been up to 97 prior to the spring, but he's done it again uh, early this year. He's struck out half the batters he's faced so far with IMG Academy. I think he might be a bit of a polarizing player just because he's a huge body, six foot five, 230 pounds, there is some effort in the delivery. There's some refinement that's needed in the delivery. But at the same time, he throws from a low slot. He's got a ton of life on the fastball. Um, the pitch is just overpowering for high school players. And he also has shown some really good feel to spin a breaking ball. It's kind of a sweepy slider, curveball, slurvy pitch around 80 um, that shows pretty impressive shape and, and bite at times. I think with all of the low slot pitchers, you maybe wonder a little bit about the consistency of the secondaries, but his arm talent and the physicality and the performance he's shown early this spring has him getting top two rounds buzz. Uh, and another player in Florida, another high school pitcher who's getting top two rounds buzz is Landon Marutis, a right-handed pitcher at Calvary Christian High in Clearwater, Florida. 
entering the year, we had him ranked as the number three pitcher on his own high school team, which speaks to the talent that the Calvary Christian has. Um, but he has come out and shown more velocity than, than he showed last summer, has been up to 96, 97 at peak, more consistently in the mid-90s when he was previously kind of in that upper 80s, 91, 92 mile per hour range. Really strong athlete. He's also hitting over 500 for Calvary Christian. I think if he gets to college, um, probably has a chance to be a, a two-way player, but certainly more of a pitcher for the pro teams. Great strike thrower. I think it's 32 strikeouts to just one walk so far after about four games. He's coming off of a seven-inning complete game shutout with 14 punches. Um, so he's been really strong. I expect him to move up on our next update. He's also getting top two rounds buzz. And then another player um, in Florida from the prep ranks who sounds like just has been really impressive is Adrian Santana. I think we talked about him on our last podcast, Peter, as, as maybe one of my personal cheese balls. I think Part of the reason he's moving up is maybe because I just didn't have him high enough on the board last time. But if you break down the overall profile, it's a switch hitting shortstop who's one of the better defensive shortstops in the high school class. He's a 70 or an 80 grade runner. The swing is easy, repeatable from both sides, solid approach, solid bat to ball skills. Uh, the biggest thing for him this spring is he's come out with a little bit more physicality. He's still not huge, probably will always be more of an undersized player. Um, but there's a little bit more impact that he's shown in batting practice, which has maybe just given him a, a more complete and less, um, maybe you can pick holes in, in the impact a little bit less than you could prior to the spring. But it, you, you look at that overall profile, and it's pretty similar to some shortstops like an Edwin Arroyo or a Matthew Lugo in, in 2021 and 2019, respectively. Both those players went in the second round. I'm hearing a lot of top two rounds buzz on Santana as well. Um, and there are kind of sneakily a lot of high school shortstops in that comp first round back of the first through second round range. And, and Santa Santana seems to be another one of those. Peter, I know you're mostly focused on the college uh, ranks, but if you have any thoughts on any of these guys, please uh, hop in. Yeah. Johnson was a guy that I saw last summer at area code. And then even as a 2020 underclassman and the amount and, and kind of the improvement that he's showed from year to year, has been really impressive. I'm with you that I think he's more of a finished product than some other arms. I think he's more of a finished product than Landon Marutis um, and other arms kind of in that range. But I mean, like you said, he's been up to 99 this spring with a really heavy fastball um, from a really tough arm angle too. He throws from almost a low three quarter slot breaking Mm -hmm. ball has shown above average. Sometimes Um, I think that there's room to improve it. And then especially like you said, um, there are some refinements to, to make in the delivery and he's, and, and, you know, he's a six, five lefty starter. It's really good clay. Um, he's not like the projectable kind of frame that you'd see in like an Alex Clemmy. Yeah. Um, so I think it's more like, okay, what can we do with the cam Johnson? Like, I think teams are going to be sitting there like, okay, what can we do with cam Johnson right now? Because I think that physically it's, I think it's a finished product more or less. So it's kind of like, what can we do with the delivery? How do we view the breaking ball? Um, you know, where do we see him? But there's no doubt he's been outstanding this spring. Marutis, again, like you said, has been really good, super athletic. I think he's a guy that I wouldn't be shocked to see go super high, uh, not super high as in like the top 20 to 25 picks, but um 
I'm curious once it once it gets into kind of like that, you know, 35, 40 range where he ends up going. And then Adrian Santana, I know he's one of your guys, like you said. It's a projectable, no doubt, shortstop who's going to add a lot more impact and he's going to stay probably at worst like a 65 runner. Um, I mean, it's no doubt shortstop actions. He's super smooth up the middle. He's rangy. He's got a good arm. Um, With the bat, like you said, there isn't a ton of impact, but like with his frame, just looking at it, you can easily add – 10 15 pounds and with that will come impact and also simply just him getting older um like most of these high school guys as they literally just get older they're gonna add more impact so i'm a big fan of all three of those high school guys um kind of in i might be in in your territory maybe not quite with santana but i might be the biggest fan long term of a profile like santana going forward i think Mm -hmm. that he he's got a ton of upside so I'm excited to see him perform this spring. Same with Johnson and Marutis. And um, it's Florida's, again, just super loaded. Yeah, always is. And maybe it's a, a bias in the calendar that we always kind of get early feedback from from states like Florida, from the southern states early on. But, yeah, just hearing you talk about Santana and, and breaking down the tools, I'm, I'm kind of kicking myself and, and wondering, man, why wasn't he already in the top 100 of the year? Because we knew a lot of this uh, prior to the year, so I'll have to take that one. Because even even though I liked him, I I feel like I had him underranked. But uh, that's what the updates are for. So <laughs> exactly, we're always striving for perfection, even if we'll never fully reach it, Peter. That's exactly. Uh, where do you want to head next? A couple of other college arms I'm interested in. Maybe a maybe a bat that that you've really liked for a long time. It feels like, uh, but I'll, I'll let you uh, steer us in the next direction here. Yeah, I mean, there are a pair of college relievers who I think that, you know, you hear us say college relievers and you're like, well, you know, they're Turn college the relievers. Podcast. <laughs> exactly. They'll probably pause it and, and switch over to someone else. But uh, no, Terry Busey at Georgia Tech um, and Sam Knowlton down at South Alabama. Terry Busey in particular has been super, super impressive um, so far for Georgia Tech. He's been basically perfect um as a reliever as their closer in seven games he's thrown 12 innings he's got a k walk of 23 to 1 and he's allowed just five hits all year um so he's been one of the better relievers in the country he's been up to 96 with his fastball his fastball's got a a, a ridiculously high miss rate of 47 percent. the slider that goes even higher up to 73 percent um he's really just kind of a two-pitch guy right now but I mean, as the old adage goes, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. He's carved through some pretty good competition with just those two pitches and and dominated with them. Um, he throws from a re- he's got really short arm action. He almost he almost kind of throws like a catcher. It's just he he yeah. doesn't really bring it back. It's just kind of like a cock and fire type of delivery. It looks um, like a reliever, I will say. Yeah, it's we were talking about it at some point. Like when would Georgia Tech? trot him out as a starter potentially mm-hmm. um yeah, I'm, I'm curious what you think about him as a starter versus reliever because i've talked to scouts about Busey, and i remember last fall hearing about how electric he was and how excited the industry was to see him on the mound and potentially see him in a starter's role i know selfishly i want to see him in a starter role just to see if he can do it um, but when you look at the delivery when you look at just his track record of usage um at his his previous school last summer at the MLB draft league and now at Georgia tech, 
I mean, Teddy, Teddy Cahill with us was saying, um, maybe he's kind of shown you that he just is a reliever because that's where he's consistently been. Is that the camp that you're in? Because I know Georgia tech, it seems like their biggest question on paper is what are you going to get from the starters? And, and part of me wants to just see him in that role to see what it looks like, to see if the pitch mix opens up a little bit more to see if the stuff, um, kind of maintains itself in, in longer outings. Uh, he also hasn't pitched on back-to-back days, and that's kind of a consistent criticism of, of college relievers. They just don't have the usage patterns that, that you see um, relievers throwing at the major league level. But, yeah, what are your thoughts on him potentially starting? Do you think that it would be smart or maybe an incorrect move by Georgia Tech? Because, like you said, he's been a lockdown reliever, uh, and there is some sense that kind of creating your games from the back and going forward is, is a way you can make it work if you have a strong bullpen. But yeah, thoughts on Busey as a starter reliever profile. Yeah, I think at the pro level, um, I think you're definitely looking at a reliever. Um, I think just the operation, the pitch mix and track record, I think all three very heavily point towards being a reliever. Um, like we touched on, it's fastball slider. Um, at John A. Logan, he appeared in 23 games, didn't start one. MLB draft league appeared in a few games, didn't start one. And, you know, that's not to knock Busey at all. He's been lights out. I just don't, I'm interested to see if they would ever trot him out. I I think it would, if anywhere, it'd be a midweek game just because I don't think they'd want to use him for three innings in a conference weekend, just because they'd most likely burn him at least until Sunday. So I think if you're going to see him at all, which just talking it through, I don't think will happen just because of how good he's been out of the bullpen. I don't know why they'd want to mess with that. Um, I think selfishly, we'd both be curious to see what that would look like as a starter if he could navigate even through four innings where he'd have to go through in order one, one and a half times. Um, but I, I think he's definitely a reliever at this point. Um, the slider's a plus pitch. It's a super, super tight kind of sweepy breaking ball that you know, it'll tie up right-handed hitters. It'll get swing and miss against lefties. Um, his fastball coming from that release height and arm slot plays up, um, plays up even more when you elevate it. And I think in looking at, it's always such a polarizing and I think, I guess, sensitive topic, you could say, when talking about where you're going to take a reliever in the draft. I think yeah. Holden Powell at UCLA, just thinking back, was the most um, maybe dominant reliever, or I, I I'm probably blanking on someone that that was that was more dominant than even Powell. But um, I know Holden Powell was super dominant, and he went and he was widely viewed as the best closer in the country. He went 100 and he went in the third round, and I and I don't think he's been performing great in pro ball. So mm-hmm. I don't really know the the pick ceiling for a guy like Busey, but. I think it's comfortable right now, like top 120, top 130 is a, yeah. is a really good range for him. And I think you're getting getting a really high impact arm um, in that range. So I think his, his, his round type is kind of maxed out. But I right now, I'd, I'd view him as one of the best relievers, if not the best reliever, at least from a draft eligible standpoint in the country. Yeah, it does seem like most for most teams and the consensus for most teams is the top relievers in any given class. The third round is, is typically around the range you're going to reach for them. 
Um, you have to be really good to, to go in the second, especially if you're, you're definitely a reliever at the next level. Um, so let's get into another college reliever who has been electric for maybe some different reasons, and that's Sam Knowlton um, at South Alabama through – he's interesting because it's an extremely limited track record. He didn't pitch at all in 2022. He was recovering from Tommy John surgery, um, just five innings in 2021. This year he's shown maybe one of the biggest fastballs in the country. It's sat in the 98, 99 mile per hour range, touched 101 miles per hour. He's a massive kid, six foot eight, 255 pounds. Um, so just that physicality and that velocity alone, I think would put him on the radar, he actually pitched well in his first four outings, eight strikeouts and no walks in those looks. But his last outing, I'm not sure if he pitched uh, or if they played last night, um, but his last outing that, that I'm aware of, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, Peter, but Jacksonville State, um, this past weekend, he struggled, didn't record an out, walked three batters, hit another. And I think that's going to be the biggest question with him is what's the pitchability you're getting with Knowlton? How many strikes is he going to throw? What's the command like? It's a high arm slot. Um, he's got a lot of height naturally. He's got long levers, so it's a downhill plane with the fastball that makes it really tough to barrel up for college hitters, even when he's not maybe the most precise with his command. And I think what's also fascinating about him is he's shown an 85-88 mile per hour slider that, that has some really exciting downward bite um, that could be a good pitch. I think similar to the fastball, he needs to learn to control that and throw it more consistently moving forward. Um, but there's a lot of loud, pure stuff to work with here that I think teams that feel confident in in their pitching development would be very excited to have in their system. Yeah, I, first he did throw a lot. I was following the game just because it was an, I was interested to see how Bama would bounce back um, after dropping a series kind of in ugly fashion at Columbia. But he threw last night against Bama. Couldn't really take much from it. It was a third of an inning, gave up a hit walked a guy and then he recorded his out via strikeout. Mm-hmm. Um, but like you said, there aren't really many guys in the draft who fit the kind of six, eight, two fifty five. I guess you could call it the donkey build. Um, <laughs> I don't, I don't think there are many guys that fit that. And like you said, it's super long levers. It's coming at you from way up top and just bearing down on you. It's, it's like a bowling ball, hundred, hundred one. And like you, I was watching some synergy on him and, the slider shows, like you said, it just shows some really good hard bite, um, especially when he keeps it down. And um, I, I think it's there's minimal effort there too, and and just kind of seeing him throw. It's 98 to 100, up to 101, and it doesn't really look like he's putting a lot into it, which is encouraging to see. Yeah. I think he's as relievery as you can get. Um, you know, in terms of player profile, but again, the stuff is, is almost unmatched. So he's, he's a really intriguing guy. And I think that come day two of the draft, even though that he's probably not going to have a ton of innings under his belt, he's not going to be necessarily a workhorse like Busey. Um, he could be a guy that, you know, teams bet on the potential stuff and also the present stuff. And then also the body and take him, somewhere inside the top 10 rounds, um, you know, as a, as a potential impact reliever down the road, because that is the kind of upside he has, even though he's kind of locked into that reliever role. Um, you know, he could end up being, I mean, he's one one now he could end up being, you know, a hundred to 102 or so 
really refine the slider, make it even more of a more of a plus pitch. So mm-hmm. I think he's definitely a top ten guy. I'm I'm curious to see how high he does end up going. Yeah, if he can just put up respectable numbers, I think it wouldn't be shocking for me to see him go top five rounds with with that stuff that he throws. But there are, are certainly a lot of questions with him, as maybe is the case with with most college relievers. And the current pitchability is is quite a bit behind Terry Busey, who we just talked about as well. But um, kind of to wrap up here, Peter, I will let you pick a few other players that you want to talk through. Uh, we've been going for close to an hour, which I think it's always good when, when we can go longer than we planned and it, it doesn't feel like a pain at all. It's just great stuff and fun to talk about. So who are a few guys you want to wrap up with? I was going to say, we always enter the, uh, we always start the call with saying, oh, you know, we'll go 30, <laughs> 45 minutes. But then once we actually start breaking down these guys and talking about them, it just gets, it's so mm-hmm. much fun to kind of dive deeper. Uh, Absolutely. But two more college guys, a pitcher and a hitter. Uh, the first is Kiefer Lord up at Washington. He got a ton of buzz this fall. And I feel like before you go into them, I feel like you are on these guys early and you've been uh, adamantly for both Kiefer Lord and the hitter you're going to mention. So kudos to you once again, Peter. <laughs> I appreciate it. Yeah, no, I uh, I had a lot of time on my hands in the fall. And so uh, and then also with Horvath, I was, I was excited about him even last year. But Lord especially, D3 transfer from Carleton College in Minnesota. Um, it was super loud in the fall up to 98, 99. He's been up to 99 this season, um, as Washington's Friday guy and Washington's been really good as a team. Um, but in 22 and two thirds innings, he's got 31 Ks to six walks relies heavily on his fastball. It's a pitch. He throws above 80% of the time. Um, but with, for how much he throws it, he's got a respectable miss rate of 26%. And then he's got two shorter breaking balls and a curveball and a slider. Um, but he's super athletic. He moves well. There's some projection remaining. Um, and I know that he's a guy just from guys that I've talked to. And then just in in terms of sheer performance, he's a guy who I think could go as high as the top three or so rounds. I wouldn't be shocked to even see him go a little bit higher. But he's yep. got super electric arm speed again i think in the operation there's some there's some stuff to clean up um but the arm talent is electric he's got fast arm speed he's a good athlete um there's probably more velo even in there and you have to think of okay he's coming over from a d3 school this is his first time probably with like a legitimate pitching development i guess regiment i don't want to knock carlton college um D3 schools like that only have so many resources, but mm-hmm. I think this is his first time, you know, in a power five setting. And then that you're going to tap into the, you know, even more upside that he's got when you stick him in a pro org and get him, you know, to their complex and then working with their player development guys. So he's a guy who I think is just skyrocketing up boards. Horvath was a guy who. Yeah, this is Mac Horvath, UNC third baseman. Yeah, I I get too excited about him. I roll right into him. But, <laughs> no, you're good. Uh, yeah, Mac Horvath was a guy last year. He was a draft-eligible sophomore um, based on age. And if you look at his batting average, you see 268, and you're like, okay, you know, that's that's relatively modest. But he started off super, super slow. I don't know the exact numbers, but he started off really slow. And then once April hit, um, it seemed like he was getting at least two hits a game, one of which being in the extra base variety, finished up hitting 268 with 15 doubles, 18 bombs. Um, 
I'm pulling up his numbers right now just to see. So he was hitting basically under 200 until, uh, yeah, I'm looking at April 2nd. He was hitting 198. From that point on, the average jumped to, like you said, 268 to end the year. So certainly a quiet start, dampered maybe the overall line and the overall hitting numbers but you look up and it's also 18 homers and 15 doubles for a guy who's playing third base so that that's pretty good but continue yeah and i don't want to speculate on or, or, or put stuff on the record with the type of interest he did get last year um but I, I was hearing you know pretty pretty gaudy um potential round slots for him last year and he opted to head back to unc um he performed well on the cape in a limited sample size the power was was really impressive um, with Wood in 35 games in the Northwoods. He hit four home runs, and then in 18 games on the Cape, he hit six home runs, which in less than half of a season put him tied for second across the league um, in home runs. And then people were really excited, you know, coming into this year, okay, is, is this year that Matt Horvath is going to put it all together? Is this the year he's going to sustain production for the entire season? And it sure is looking like it. Uh, he's got seven doubles and nine home runs, 21 RBIs. Um, he's another kind of sneaky runner. He's got 10 bags compared to being only thrown out once. Yeah. he Early in the season, he seems like one of the better power and speed producers in the country. I mean, he's near the top of the leaderboards in home runs with nine. He's also, I mean, there there are a couple of players that are well above 10 stolen bases, but in terms of the top stealing players in the country, he's near the top of that list as well. Um, so just that power-speed combination is exciting. He also had 19 bags last year. And, and you're right, he doesn't look like the fastest guy, but he actually moves pretty well and seems to be a really advanced base runner. Yeah, I agree. And, and the bat speed is super impressive. He's another guy who in the fall, um, because of his arm strength and, like you said, the athleticism he possesses, um, he was a guy that Coach Forbes was even debating using in right field. He even played center field in some inner squad scrimmages. So depending on you know what type of look that some teams got on him, he could be viewed even as like a corner outfield type. I don't think he's quite a pro center fielder, but it's there's a chance he ends up as, as a right fielder with an above average arm. So he's a guy, I know I tweeted about him at some point in the winter, um, but I would not be shocked, especially if he keeps this up, for Horvath to go in that that top two round day one range in the top 70 picks, especially if he's going to end up hitting 20 home runs and stealing 15 to 20 bases with another respectable K walk. So he's a really interesting follow down in Chapel Hill, all out of the spotlight, even though he's a 24 guy and a potential one, one guy at that is on Honeycutt. Mm -hmm. um, I think that Horvath is, is a really, really intriguing prospect. Yeah, he's a good one. I, I really came away impressed with like what he does with the lower half. A lot of the power so far this year has been to the pull side, but I think he puts himself in a good position to hit to the opposite field. And over the, the history of his his career, uh, he actually has done a really good job with outer third pitches. Um, to your point about the walk rate, his, his chase rate is low, his miss rate is low. It's 13% and 16% so far this year. Obviously, those numbers I would expect to tick up a little bit as we get more into conference play. Um, but he has been quite good, and I expect him to be one of the more significant risers on our next draft update. Um, Peter, any other players you want to talk about, or should we wrap this one up uh, as we approach the one-hour mark? I, I've touched on my guys. Uh, like you were saying about Horvath, and it was a great point about his lower half. 
Um, it's a super, super explosive tight turn. The backside is really explosive, you know, exploding through the baseball. And yeah, I just, I wanted, that was a great point. But in terms of other guys, I think I've touched on the guys I wanted to talk about. Mm -hmm. Um, did you have anyone else that you want to talk about? No, we, we kind of went through it. Uh, There is one other name that I'll just mention here at the end, Joey Volchko, a right-handed pitcher at Redwood High School in California. He's getting some buzz as well. Um, I saw him a little bit at the area code games last summer. Uh, he showed good stuff, a fastball in the low 90s with a pair of breaking balls with different shape, but he struggled with control and results early this spring. Uh, it sounds like he's been getting a lot of good feedback. He's a really big, strong kid, pitching 91-96. Slider and curveball are both getting average or above average grades. The changeup also sounds like it's a solid pitch, so that gives him a rounded out four-pitch mix. Um, like I said, big kid, six foot four, two 210 pounds, attacks from a high slot. I think there's a lot of movement to all of his pitches, so he's tough to barrel up. He could be a guy who's moving up boards, but at the same time, he's a Stanford commit. Uh, and as we all know with Stanford commits, they can be difficult to sign directly out of high school. Just not a lot of players who have done it over the past few years who have been in this sort of range, this sort of top 100, top 150 range, those kids typically get to college they do a good job getting getting them to campus stanford is uh, an education that people value highly obviously um so that's another one i'll just mention in closing as we wrap a lot of player movement obviously we've got a lot of games uh, under that are already kind of done we've got a lot more on the way uh, hopefully these northern schools on the high school side start picking up and we get some fun information from from those players as well Uh, But before we get out of here, Peter, anything you want to plug that you're working on, anything that listeners should be aware of from your side of things uh, before we get out of here? Yeah. um, Listen to, obviously, subscribe to the BA podcast feed. Um, Give this podcast a listen. It'd be much appreciated. The college podcast with Teddy Cahill release on a weekly basis. Um, And then we've got a lot of great stuff on the website with the World Baseball Classic going on. Um, college baseball season in full swing. Carlos and I work on a weekly hot sheet where we just kind of write quick hitters on 20 guys that stood out. And it's a fun exercise because we essentially erase all track record and isolate it to one weekend. So mm-hmm. you'll see a lot of kind of under the radar guys, um, maybe from smaller schools. And then, yeah. And if you guys have any hot sheet candidates any week, feel free to send them at us and, and tweet at us because it's obviously a big country. We, I think we do a good job covering the biggest performers, but there's always a chance that, that we could miss someone who's deserving. So definitely, if you if you see some performances that are loud, let us know. Yeah, absolutely. The hot sheet. And then every Thursday, I've got a kind of what to watch for in college baseball. Every Monday, I kind of go into a deeper dive into 10 guys that are that are playing really well. And uh, really, any every day, any day you go onto the BA website, there's – there's content for anybody, whether you're a minor league nut or more kind of major league centric into the prospect stuff, fantasy. Now um, there's stuff for everyone. So subscribe, read whatever it is you'd like. And one fun nugget, like you were mentioning about Stanford baseball, the last time they lost someone from the prep school ranks to the draft was I think before 2019. Um, I think, Anyone that they sign typically makes it to campus. So if you're going to Stanford and committed out of high school, that's where you'll end up. The last guy they lost was Michael Mercado in 2017. Oh, I remember Mercado, the tall, lanky, uh, pitching savant with the extensive pregame rituals that he went through. He was he was a fun spring riser. 
Um, so thank you, Peter. You're, you're a veteran uh, at plugging the site already. Um, <laughs> just echo everything Peter said. Uh, really appreciate people who subscribe to Baseball America. You guys really do allow us to do what we do. So we thank you. We appreciate you. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Uh, like Peter said, give it a rating and a review if you have not already and you feel so inclined. Um, for Peter, I'm Carlos. Thanks for listening, everybody. We will see you next time.